Welcome to Creating Synergy, where we explore what it takes to transform. Whether you are transforming yourself, your team, your business, or your community, we'll connect you with insightful and challenging leaders who share their stories of successful transformations to give you practical ideas for your own journey. Join us for another insightful episode of Creating Synergy. All right, welcome to Creating Synergy. Today, we have a beautiful lady called Amanda Sheedy, otherwise known as the Change Whisperer. <laughs> I love that. We'll go into that a little bit further. Amanda believes everyone has more talent and capability than they can imagine. And her calling in life is to help these people with a path and the courage to overcome what she calls the mental brick wall. Amanda is a mother of two beautiful girls, young girls, a wife to a very supportive husband and and a a reluctant dog owner. (laughs) We'll get into that as well. She runs her own consulting firm as a leadership and development coach and she is also a change specialist, hence the Change Whisperer. She previously held roles across many industries such as defense, so senior roles across many industries such as defense, banking, utilities and mining. And she's now working with many leaders across various industries to help them through team coaching, one-on-one coaching, and she guides these, uh, these businesses through change as well. Amanda is what she calls a neuroscience nerd, and I love this, and we'll delve into this a little bit further. And she loves getting into the neuroscience about how we're wired and how this influences our decision-making relationships and habits. But ultimately, Amanda helps people recognize their barriers and helps them achieve through breakthrough moments and empowers them to lead themselves through work and life. Welcome, Amanda. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for that uh, really uplifting intro. It's good. <laughs> it's good. Yeah, well, it's uh, a lot to talk about today. Uh, change Whisperer, let's start off with mm. that first. Where does where's that come from? Yeah, um, just feedback from clients that I've done work with. And I get called a lot of things, um, but <laughs> all good. <I> like. <laughs> yeah, all good. But change uh, whisperer was one that sort of like has come out of all the work that I've done, particularly with one on ones over the last or one on one clients over the last few years. So, and I, I suppose it's really the essence or the nuance of coaching, mm-hmm. you know, where you you're not telling people what to do, but you know, you get them to you provide opportunities or you provide almost you present doors for them to open if they choose to yeah and provide encouragement to for them to change um so there's always that guidance yeah and they sort of you know get to the end or get to the outcome and it's like oh wow you know like yeah. i didn't think i'd be able to do that so it's almost a little bit changed by stealth yeah in that's some awesome. ways yeah it's the beauty of coaching isn't it yeah, yeah. So you're definitely not the dog whisperer then. Oh, well, yeah. So there, your comment about my reluctant. So we've recently added to the family with a, with Charlie, who's a, um, he's a, a nearly five-month-old border collie, yeah. so um, very active. and um, Tearing up the backyard. Yeah, look, he's not too bad, but my husband's always, Matt's always had dogs, yeah. you know, around him sort of being on a farm and we used to look after my father-in-law's dog, Chloe, who was yep. a border collie, and she was old. She was about, you know, 12, 15. So a bit more tame. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> she was just happy to, like, you know, sit down and sleep all day. Yeah, and, seen and it loved, all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I suppose over the last couple of years, and my girls are a little bit older now, you know, Ava's 12 and Alex, Alexandra's 10, 
Um, there was a lot of pressure to get a dog. But knowing the work involved and knowing how active Border Collies are, um, hence the reluctance. The, yeah. you, you <laughs> because do. we all know who does the work at you the end of the day. Know, don't you? Charlie, yeah. a boy. Charlie, Charlie. Boy, Charlie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Charlie so, yeah. no, everyone's uh, – we've had Charlie now for two months. Yeah. So, yeah, everyone's very smitten with Charlie. Yes. Um, so I know what it feels like. I've recently got a, uh, a young pup as well. Freddie, his name is, Charlie and Freddie. Welcome to the team. Right, so just getting into it, tell us a little bit about your journey. How did you become the Change Whisperer? How did you get into coaching, team coaching, all that? Yeah, so team coaching is really interesting and I'm looking forward to the conversation, talking more a bit about that. But I, I really, I started my own business uh, four years ago mm-hmm. and it was something that I'd been planning to do. Like I'd wanted to, I'd wanted to start my own business for some time and it probably took me two years to leave the organisation I was working for from the moment I thought, yeah, I need to, I need to start developing and putting an exit strategy together mm-hmm. to when I actually did leave. And at that time I was doing a lot of um, change work. So I was the change lead for two big transformation projects and had already, and I suppose had been working in change for a number of years, um, but it probably was never called, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, it wasn't really called change management, mm. but really that's, that's what it was. And I got really interested in doing over that time, particularly probably my last two years working in corporates with a specific focus on change, I got really curious about why did some people seem to embrace and move toward change more and and others didn't so why did some sort of like resist and move away from it and why did others you know take the opposite Mm. sort of path and embrace it and move towards it so I got really curious about that and then I got um, curious about well of the people that resisted change what prevent you know why did they resist change what was where was that coming from and, and ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, there's always going to be a resistance to change. Mm. People, people resist change. Um, it's sort of part of the natural change journey. And really all you can do as change practitioners is really reduce, reduce that level of resistance or minimise it as best as possible. And so I was really keen then to, to start exploring more about, well, how do, you know, how do I work with people? to reduce that level of fear, reduce that level of resistance um, and get them to see the opportunity and move towards the opportunity. Mm, embrace change. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we've talked before and you yep. have a, a long history and defence is an area that you've worked in. My first job. Your first job. Yeah. Is that, has that shaped you into thinking that way? Well, you know, I'm probably biased because I think everything shapes you. Um, your whole, inv- you know, what you experience, you, val- you know, your values, um, perceptions, how you perceive the world is based on your experience and environment. So absolutely. I mean, I, I have this thing I say, you know, I ran away. I ran away and joined the Air Force when I was about 17. Grew up in a small country town, yeah. didn't see any opportunity. And I think that's, you know, that was probably has always been a key driver for me is that I like to seek opportunity. And if mm-hmm. there's no opportunity, then I start to get restless. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'd planned to leave home from, I think, since I was about 12. Yeah, wow. um, I was planning as to where I was going to go and what I was going to do. Um, Where'd you grow up? 
in Corn in the Flinders Rangers. Okay, yeah, cool. So, you know, 1,300 people. Um, and, and you know, the military um, was just, just made it so easy. Mm. You know, it was literally like they... Who, who can argue? Well, <laughs> but they just did everything for you. Yeah, you know? so, yeah that's true. So, you know, like you didn't have to think. You didn't have to save up to leave. It was literally like a bus pulled up out the front of your door, you got on, they took you away and they paid for everything. Yeah. Um, and so that's how easy it was. You know, and I wanted to see the world. I wanted to explore all different um, places and, and see different things as you do when you're, yeah. you know, like you're 15, 16, mm-hmm. 17. And the Air Force provided, um, you know, a completely different view of the world. And I did about eight years with the Air Force. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. So I was a what they called a signals operator, and in, which which is also known as you know um, signals analyst in, in, the, yeah. in the intelligence world. So that's probably where my love for process first comes because I did a lot of analytical processing. And so yeah, I, I often say to people, I'm a process diehard from way back, <laughs> and I think that's <laughs> because I think there is a process for everything. Yeah, there's a um, formula to everything. Isn't there, there is it. But that doesn't mean I think when people hear process, um, they, you know, what that gives them is certainty and mm. we like certainty. Yeah. But, you know, often, you know, process for me now, process is not linear. Mm. In fact, I think it's better when it's not or you get a better outcome when it's not. But for many people and, and you know, many clients I work with, I was going to say, I guess t- linear means tunnel vision really almost, doesn't it? So you, got, you, you don't get yeah. anything in your way whereas when it's zigzagging, it allows for growth and opportunity and mistakes and testing and trying. Is that yeah. your idea? Yeah, I think, you know, process gives people comfort because they think they know what's going to come next. Yeah. But, you know, particularly with change work and particularly, you know, um, when you're coaching for change, you know, you might start off with a with a plan of this is how we're going to progress forward, but sometimes that'll that'll um, digress or you know emerge into something uh, something completely different. Yeah. So. So what? So breaking all that down, what yeah. does change mean to you? Like, what you, there are people who think change has is just a process. They you know, as in follow the bouncing ball and we'll get through change. Hmm. We've often discussed that change is so much more than just a process. Can you explain that further? I think change, yeah, change is so what, is, what isn't change? Change, right. is, yeah. change is, not, is often not a process. And I think that's probably where, you know, organisations can get into a little difficulty with managing change. So it's like where's the change methodology? Let's implement a framework and let's implement, a, you know, a change process. And they look to, you know, well, what course can we send people on and what three-day course can we send people on and when they come back they'll know everything to know about change. Yeah, it's not really that way. Yeah, and, and I think that's probably where a lot of people's thinking goes when it comes to managing change and that's probably 10 20%. Um, so I, I think having a, a process and a methodology about and again, it gives it gives people that certainty of knowing, well, if we've got a methodology and these are the three steps to implementing change then, and as long as we follow that bouncing ball, then we've got it nailed. But the missing or the gap for me is the conversations of change. Mm. So because when you're looking at any change um, at any level, it requires usually a high level of human change, mm. not just process and system change. Yeah. 
And so if we're talking about human change, then we're talking about thinking and behavioural change. And if you look at a change project and if you look at the benefits that are associated with any change project, and if you look at that as, you know, the overall outcomes and benefits of a project, this is 100% of what we're delivering or what the outcomes are, 70% of them usually um, are realised through the human chain. Mm. Yeah, where only a very small portion is realised. You know, if we do nothing else but just change the process in the systems, we might realise 20 30%. But if we're really wanting people to change the way they behave and change the way they think to realise the hundred percent benefit, mm. then what are you doing about that? Is that through? So is that other seventy percent things like communications? Like you said, the moment you increase comms, you generally have more buy-in or understanding or transparency. Is that the? Well, I think when I think communication plays a significant part in getting people to understand and tr- understand the change. Yeah, so comms is almost like the low-hanging fruit. It's a good place to start. My response to that would be rather than is comms the low-hanging fruit, I think it's more the conversations of change is more of the low-hanging fruit. You know, and I, I, what comes to mind when you say that is, you know, in my experience, we've all had the town hall conversations of the leaders standing up and yeah. communicating you know, the purpose and the vision of the change. It's not very personal, personable, is it? Yeah. Yeah, and I think what happens is that you get low engagement. Mm. Um, And then because most times people have made their mind up about the change before they come into the room, consciously or or sort of like non-consciously. It's just how we're wired. Yeah. Um, And then what happens is that they're looking for evidence to support what they believe is true. So if we're implementing a new system, their mind and their thinking goes back to well, when did this when did this happen last time, mm-hmm. um, and what what was my experience with that? And so I think it's more about you know the term or I use the conversations of change. So yeah, like you know that. what are people how are people really going to feel when they come into the room and what's likely to be triggered for them mm. and is it going to be a positive experience or is it going to be a negative experience? And how do we really talk about that and address those fears? in a very transparent way mm. um, as, as best as possible or as much as that we can. So we're not always, and I, and I think this is, you know, leaders go in with expectations that they need to have the answers all the time and, and you know, they're not going to have the answers no. all the time and, and nor should they. So do you think that's why people resist change because they haven't had that conversation? Is that, you know, a big part of it? or? So I think we get into, which is another reason where I sort of, the path I went down with understanding why do people resist change and I looked to the neuroscience yeah. um, to give me some, some answers here or to give me some answers and to put a bit of sense around it. Mm. I'm, a, I'm a big person for sense making yeah. um, and I find if, you know, if I can make sense of it, then I can explain it to others um, and then usually, you know, if people can then put that into perspective for themselves then they're able to go okay that's why that is and and yeah, yeah. And, and move forward so it, it's sort of like the question is the question that comes to mind when when you you talk about resistance is are we wired to resist change mm. and or I, are we yeah good question um and um it comes up many times and it's a question i've asked myself and i think um the tendency is to say yes like you know because it's we you know as we, there's a lot of resistance to change. But I think you need to look at then 
you know, our reward and threat system. So, you know, we, as humans, we scan for threat five times a second. Yeah, wow. And, you know, without consciously knowing that we do. And we're very good at picking up on those, you know, what triggers a threat in us. That's the flight or fight. Yeah, well, it, it can, it can, it's sort of like, but we, we then look to, you know, and our brains are wired to keep us safe. Yeah. So whatever we perceive as a, a threat, whatever triggers a threat, um, we're likely to, to go what I call go into the cave. Okay. So you the know. instinct is to resist, but once we've got more information, we're more open to coming around? Yeah, or? so this sort of depends then. Are you, do you have more of a growth mindset or do you have more yeah. of a fixed mindset? So if this it's is like, the rabbit hole now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so it's like if you can, if you can picture, um, you know, so we're constantly scanning for threat five times a second and then and we're constantly exposed to all this information. So if you think about a change that maybe you've, you've been recently involved with or, or you're currently managing, and you imagine that you're communicating this or you're talking to a large group of people, which is my comment before, people have already made their, as soon as they get that email with a heading, you know, um, town hall discussion on implementing new system, you know, they're immediately going, that's immediately going to trigger either a threat response for them. Yeah. Um, so they're immediately going to, you know, think about, well, where have I experienced this before? Maybe they haven't experienced it before. Maybe it might trigger uncertainty for some of them. What does this mean? Yeah. What does this mean? What does is this that mean? Is that the whiffing bit? What's in it for me? Um, I think it's that classic. You know, there are many rules of the brain, and one that was a big game changer for me was the auto perception rule, or I call the auto perception rule. So, or cognitive bias. Mm. You know, so we see, we perceive the world as we believe it to be, not how it really is. Yeah. So how we perceive the world is based on our own experiences, values, habits. You know, it's like if I had a room full of people and I got them all to draw their version of the Easter Bunny, I would get, you know, multiple different versions of what they thought the Easter Bunny looked like yeah. depending on what their experience had been. That's no different with anything else. Yeah. And so, you know, I talk about, you know, people – people are, will be triggered and, you know, if that is that trigger is deemed to be a threat, um, then I've got to keep myself safe. So what do I need to do? To, what do I need to do to keep myself safe? Now, the pull towards the dark side, if you like, is 10 times greater to move towards, you know, away from threat than what it is to move to embrace it and to move towards it. Moving um, towards creates risk, I guess, and uncertainty. And Well, I think... If we then overlay fixed and growth mindset with that, that thinking, you want people to have a growth mindset, particularly with change, because there is a lot of uncertainty and there is a, you know, there is a degree of risk, but you want people to be comfortable with that. Mm. You know, you want people to be, you know, or there'll be a, there'll be a, you know, a level of complexity or ambiguity with it. Yeah. But you want people to still be able to feel that fear and do it anyway. To yes. feel the fear but still have that resilience to be able to embrace it and move forward or have the courage to be able to still progress forward with it and not go into the cave. But the pull inside the cave or the pull to the dark side, you know, like I said, is ten times greater than you know, than what it is to move toward it. Yeah, absolutely. And the other reason why that's important to, to know for, for any change is because if they start to move towards, you know, go deep into the cave, go feel that pull towards the dark side, yeah. 
they're not listening. Yeah. They're disengaged. They then start to seek out evidence to prove what they believe is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's that perception of how they see the world. Yeah. So, you know, when you are having those conversations of change with people, you want them to be on the doorstep. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want them to start moving into the cave or moving too far toward the cave because then they won't have their listening ears on, you know. So I guess the two key words in all that for me was perception and yeah. and habit, I guess, comes out of that is that the experiences and the growth and the development and, and whatever uh, downs that these people or ups that these people have had to help them create a fixed or growth mindset, the learnings I've got from their parents, whatever that might be, has created a now a perception in their mind of a threat, a potential threat. And the reaction to that is a habit. Is that correct? It can be. It yeah. Can be. You may have a habit of thinking in a certain way. Yes. Um, and hence why change is so hard. This is the reality of it. Mm. You know, I think this is why any change any change is this is what you're up against. It takes a in village. A, in a yeah, in an organization when you've got so many different dynamics, and you would know this better than anyone being a team coaching yeah. uh, expert, I guess. When you've got so many different dynamics of upbringings, of growth, of development, of people's backgrounds, well, your country, city, whoever it might be, everyone's got different ways of thinking. Yeah. Couple that with some change in an organization, it becomes very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're, you know, if you're a change manager and you're thinking, why is this so hard? This is exactly why is it's it. so hard. Because people are difficult. <laughs> and and everyone is different yeah. and everyone's triggers will be different and they'll be, you know, everyone will have different priorities mm. about um, what they value and what they don't value. Mm. And that all, come, that, that all gets brought into the room. That all gets put on the table, whether they consciously are aware of it or not. So, and that's, so that's why change is so hard. So that's, that's why they say change is a journey, I guess. It's not something that can happen overnight. Yeah, look, but, but it's interesting, you know. I think if you look at Cotter, you know, one of his, the first step is create the urgency. Yeah. Um, and there's no, no better example than what we've just been through. Yeah, absolutely. Where you, we've seen businesses change overnight. Mm. You know, it's sort of like if the urgency um, or the need to change is so great, then a lot can be achieved in a very short time. Yeah. But I think what we're talking about with a lot of change is that it, a lot of it is visionary, mm. you know. So whether it is implementing a new system or implementing a new strategy, sometimes it's 12 months away, yeah. you know, and we don't always have the answers on day one where, you know, with the response to COVID and, and the recent shutdowns, you know, it was that did happen overnight and there was a real urgency around that you know, safety. So then you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs and that sort of like safety is, you know, like um, is number one. one. And so, uh, you know, I think that's a really good example of when the purpose is really clear and the urgency is, is, you know, right in, is right in front of you. Businesses were able to, some of them were able to relocate overnight. Yeah. It's amazing how continually happens that way though you know in Adelaide for example when the blackouts happen or in a time of chaos everyone bands together yeah and we make decisions so much more quicker than what we would ever the 16 signatures that might be required to get something through no longer are required because we just need to make it happen And, and it makes you wonder why we ever exist in a world where 16 signatures are required well, I think it's. I think what you start talking about then is just common purpose. Yeah. And I think when you start looking at, you know, and Amy Edmondson's a really classic for this. She's got a really good TED talk. Okay. Um, 
on so Amy Edmondson. Amy Edmondson. So um, why why are we really good in a crisis? Mm. And it's you know what unites teams in a crisis, and it's that common purpose. It's purpose. It's always purpose. Um, yeah, and when that's very clear, um, I think you can get change really quickly. But a lot of times it's not. If we look at day to day sort of change in business, it's not. And I think, like I said before, it's very can be very visionary. Mm. Um, and I think that's also a, um, we, when we go back to having those talking about those conversations of change. I think there's I see a lot of uh, reluctant leaders, particularly in the early days of um, implementing change, getting up and wanting to talk to their people about it. Mm. You know, if yeah. I had a dollar for every time a sponsor a sponsor said to me, "I'm I'm happy, tell me whatever you want me to do, and I'll do it," but I just don't want to get up and talk in front of a room full of people. Yeah. It's like, yeah, well, that's not going to be that helpful. <laughs> um, you know, I'd be, I'd be a billionaire. Yeah, Jerry Seinfeld says a really great joke about that. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not. I like going into jokes. <laughs> he says he goes. The number one fear in the world is public speaking. Number two is death. Yeah. So if yeah. you're at a funeral, you'd rather be in the casket than saying the eulogy. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's very funny when you think about it from that perspective. And so you know, I think that's probably what. And yeah, it's one of the fears. You know, there are many fears in change, but I think from a, a leader's perspective, it's that it's so important to engage, you know, before before the change happens, long before the change happens. Mm. And I think there's this reluctance because they aren't, they don't have that clear purpose or vision, then there's this reluctance to get up and speak very authentically about about the change in the early days. And it's yep. so and for me it's such a missed opportunity. Mm, you know, because I, I think, you know, as a leader, you don't have all the answers, but together you do. So as a leader, is that one way you believe is a quick win to help change businesses or to help businesses through change and people through change? Because often when, when change is introduced within a business, people go into their shell a little bit, they stay silent, they kind of just do what's required and don't really buy in. How do leaders get that buy-in? How do they grow, get that yeah. groundswell? Really interesting question and uh, I've done a, a fair bit of work over the last probably 18 months with in sort of like under the leading change sort of umbrella, mm -hmm. which again is very broad. But I think it's a tough gig as leaders because, you know, one, you, you need to be comfortable with not having all the answers. But a lot of leaders sometimes, you know, just because you're the leader doesn't mean you agree with what's coming. Mm. Doesn't mean you agree with the change. Or there may be some uncertainty. You know, no doubt it, it triggers some of your own threats and fears as a leader. But I also have this belief that it's not just the leader's responsibility to implement the change. I think it takes, it's the change village. It takes, you know, a whole village to implement change and change is everyone's responsibility. You know. So the leader's role is to lead that village though, isn't it? Like it's to inspire people through change and help them to understand their purpose? I think one thing that I have, one thing I've been working on um, like over the last, over the last 12 months is what other tools, thinking tools, can we give leaders to help them transition their people towards the change? And that is develop awareness and develop awareness with self themselves yeah. first yeah, and huge. then develop the awareness of others, meaning their people and the team. And it's been touted as the new change superpower, self-awareness. Yeah. 
self-awareness is the superpower altogether, isn't it? Well, I think what we're saying when we, and if we look at it through a change lens, it's like be aware of what your own triggers are. Yeah. Because I think it's, I think one of the key things for leaders when leading change is that they need to be seen as being confident leading others through change, leading themselves and leading others through change because their people will look to them. Yeah. You know, and so I think for leaders, you know, it's very helpful if they know what their own triggers are. What is likely to trigger a threat response in me? Is it not feeling valued? Is it potentially falling out of the restructure and I don't belong here anymore? And then to start having those same discussions, you know, with their people and their teams. So what is likely to trigger a threat response in my people around me? And why is that helpful as a leader? Because if I know that, then I can better prepare them for the change that's coming and I can help to minimise the resistance and provide more certainty as much as I possibly can. Absolutely. And, and that creates tr- a trusting relationship essentially. If you can communicate your fears, I guess, your trigger points with your people or your team or your community or whatever it might be, that automatically creates a trusting relationship. There's some certain leaders in the world at the moment who are just not doing that. We've seen them on TV a few times. I won't go into it. The ones in Australia and New Zealand aren't too bad, but ones overseas seem to be uh, losing their people in droves just yeah, purely through lack of poor leadership and, and not being able to handle what's, what's come their way. Mm. And I, I tend to swap out, whilst trust is important, I tend to swap out trust with respect mm. because I find... Um, particularly in the in the work environment, like you're not always going to like everyone yeah. that you work with. Uh, yes, and so and I, and I think people still associate I like someone with trust, mm. so I've got to like them to trust them. But if again, it's like you're not always going to get on with everyone, and you're not always going to like everyone. But does that mean you know you shouldn't be able to work with them? Mm. So if you say, well, do you respect? that person then most times I get a response of well yeah I respect them yeah and so then it it still creates a I respect them you know so if you respect them then how do you need to be working with them yeah I may not like what he or she is doing but I respect the decision that they need to make and I respect their position in it yeah yeah absolutely yeah and so so I, I find sometimes swapping out trust for respect gets people just to and again it's you know, just to get them to think in a different way. Let's reframe it and look at it from this way. So it gets people moving from that, you know, away, getting into the cave to moving towards something. So how do you, in all your one-on-one team coaching stuff, how do you grow these leaders? Like what, what, number one, what are, number, what are some of the key areas that you see prop up over and over again with, with your leadership development coaching? Yeah. Because... Surely there's some patterns that you would see. You love your process. You love your data. I know that. Is there some patterns that you see pop up over and over again? That I guess when people listen to this, they go, actually, and this is where the self-awareness key is. Actually, that's me. That's something that I'm doing or something that I can work on. Is, is there anything like that that you can? So I think what would be useful here and what sort of resonates when you say that for me is that with a lot of my executive in my executive coaching, so my one-on-one coaching I do with leaders, the probably three most 
common themes or outcomes that they want to change when they first come and see me is I want to be a better leader. Mm-hmm. I want to be better at change and I want to be a better communicator. And during the first session, it's always, so tell me what does good look like for you mm. with all those areas? What is it specifically that you want to be doing different in six months' time? And quite often the response is, well, I've just been given this feedback from a 360-degree survey or, you know, I've had this feedback from my, from my manager and, and they've told me I need to be a better communicator. And it's not until we start to unpack that that it's like, well, what does leadership mean for you? Mm. You know, not what someone else wants you to be, yeah. but what does it actually, what does good leadership look like for you? So what I find is people become so consumed or leaders become so consumed about being what someone else wants them to be and not who they truly are. Yeah. Because, you know, leadership means many things and there's many different styles of leaders. But which one resonates with you? What is your own unique style of leadership that you want to um, bring to the table and put out there? It's such a powerful question. Going into the neuroscience of it all, do you think that approval addiction, I guess, of wanting to do what other people want you to do, does that come from, again, the same perceptions and growth and learnings that the world has taught you? Yeah, so it's that... Um, this need to please, yeah, you know, and I see a lot of passive defensive cultures. Yeah, um, I see a lot of passive defensive individuals in there. So, so what does that look like? Style. What is a so? Can you just touch on that? What is a passive defensive style? So what I see a lot of in my work with individuals and teams um, across organisations is that over time we've created work environments where employees are consistently told what to do. So when they're consistently told what to do and they get into trouble if they go outside of that, then what we reinforce is an environment or a culture or an organisation that follows the bouncing ball, Mm. that doesn't certainly doesn't create collaboration or creativity. So do this because it's always been done this way. Do this because it's always done this way and for those that do go outside or, you know, if you like, uh, start to stray from that, they've gotten into trouble. And so it's like the system just bringing them back in and going, no, this is the way we want it done. Mm. And so what they lose is their own sense of identity. They actually start to lose their own sense of purpose, mm. um, connection with value, and they start to lose their, own, their confidence in their own ability. So my opinion doesn't matter, the need to check in all the time. And I see a lot of organisations reinforcing this type of thinking all of the time. So a leader's created in the same way because of so a young, new, up-and-coming leader, emerging leader goes into a new role and has what is known as an aggressive leader, I guess, a red, we talk colours, red, a red leader. Does he or she then become passive or defensive or is that, again, personality type? Is it, is it, are you, are you moulded by the environment you're in or is it a personal thing along with the environment that you're, you're in? I think um, the environment definitely has a significant impact on how you think and then how you behave. And so, you know, it's not uncommon and, um, and I'm sure, you know, you've seen this many times where you'll have 
a, a new leader or a new a new employee comes to the organisation, um, they're very engaged, they're keen to make change and they start down that path, they get some resistance but they're able to bounce back and they're able to keep moving forward. But it's like what they're up against. You, yeah. They sort of get to that 12-month mark you know, sometimes earlier, but they get to that 12-month mark and they either stay or they've been conditioned to actually fit in with the rest of the organisation. So it's almost like they're swimming one way and the organisation is swimming the other way and they keep pulling them back in, keep pulling them back in. So I think it takes, again, coming back to that, you know, change. I think we underestimate the power or the pull of the overall system or the yeah. overall organisation yeah. or the system that the organisation works in. And so, yeah, not uncom- uncommon that how we show up when we first start with an organisation, 12 months later, we can look completely different. Yeah, see that time and time again. So going back to the executive thing, you asked the question to change, how do I become a better leader? How do I manage change or become better at change? And the third one was how do I communicate better? Yeah. And you asked the question, what does leadership look like to you? To me, that sounds like the light bulb moment. That sounds like the moment where they've, whoever you're working with will now start thinking differently about what it is to mean to be a leader. So would you say it's a really good place to start for anyone who's looking to take on change or journey or, a journey or go on the self-awareness development journey in, in, and asking, well, what, what do I want to be? When I grow up, <laughs> how do I want to be seen to lead people? How do I want to, uh, how do I live to my own? What are my own values? You know, what are, where's a good place to start for people who might not go down the, the coaching journey, but some good starting questions that they could possibly ask themselves? Yeah, look, I think um, we start to get into a bit of personal brand here mm. as well. Yeah. And so, for many, for many people that show up at my coaching table, you know, and for many leaders that show up there, um, they, you know, they've only ever identified with the organisations they're working for. Yeah. And so, you know, what anchors them into the ground? What's, you know, what keeps them centred? What keeps them focused? And so what are your strengths? What are you really good at? Not what and what do you, what energises you? So I think... Um, you know, the work I often do with people when they become just focused on what everyone else wants them to do and and lose lose sight of well, what is my what is my purpose and, and what energizes me, it's well, what are your core values? Mm. And a lot of times people don't know. You know, they think they need to be aligned with the corporate values. Yeah. But, you know, your own personal core values can be can be very different. And then what's your strengths? And like I said before, it's not always, you know, what someone else keeps telling you you're good at. You know, it might be something that you don't have words for at the moment. It might be something, you know, what what do people come and pick your brains about all the time? Yeah. What interests you? What yeah, are you what, curious what do you about? Enjoy? Yeah. Because it's often getting back to those those core areas of well, what are your personal values and what are your strengths that help keep us focused about. You know, well, what is my unique value and contribution that I that I offer that I can put on the table? So, for anyone listening, I guess the the question is, what type of leader do I want to be? What are my core values and fundamental? What type of brand identity do I want to represent? And yeah. that'll be different for everyone. It will be. 
that'll be different for everyone. And I guess you come in with that journey by helping them understand. You know, you talk about being the change whisperer and, and whatnot. Is that how you go about it? You help them unpack that on your coaching journey? Yeah. And teams as well. I mean, teams is a whole different dynamic. Teams is very interesting and I I have done a lot of study in coaching teams over the last probably two years and have been very fortunate to study with um, Professor David Clutterbuck and Master Coach Tammy Turner. And team coaching is, is a very new discipline to coaching, mm-hmm. but the outcomes are so significant. It's, it's like I, I think there'll always be a place for one-on-one exec coaching, but it's like if you can imagine you're working with one person 101, the momentum you create, you know, maybe or the progress forward, you know, might be 10, 20%. But when you're coaching that person and the whole team of eight or 10 people, the momentum you create is 10 times greater yeah. because ultimately you're getting them all to you you're getting them all to think and move together in the same direction and hold each at, other accountable at, at, and the, same at the same time yeah. so they all their development and growth is all happening or ultimately you want them to develop and grow and move together at the same time but the complexity comes with when it's one-on-one coaching you're managing you know the one relationship or the one person you have in front of you when you're coaching a team you're managing the dynamics of, you know, if, it, if it's a team of eight, you're managing 64 different relationships yeah, that people wow. have just in that group of eight, team of eight. Yeah, that's true. And, of course, I think the other big difference with team- It's actually an amazing stat. You don't ever think of that, do you? 64 no. different relationships with a team of eight. Yeah. It's eight times eight. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah, exactly. But the other big difference with team coaching is that you're not only coaching that team. It's like what makes them a team? Who else do they, who does that team serve? Because they are part of a bigger system. Mm. And so you're then coaching them within that system. So they have people that they report to, they have teams, they have stakeholders, they have customers. How do they interact yeah. as part of that system? I'll leave that to you, I think. <laughs> so when you do all your work with executives, you do the one-on-ones and you can see that 20% increase. When you do the team coaching with an executive team, what are some of the benefits that you would see come out of that for the organisation? I think um, to answer that, you probably need to look at when do I get called in to do team coaching? And it's usually because there's a dysfunction. Yeah. There's a dysfunction in relationship with um, the leader and the team, the team and the leader, or certain team members. Yeah. Yeah, you Um, rarely get called to a high-performing team. Yeah. Um, And so there's usually a problem that, you know, you're brought in to help solve. And most times, you know, it could be they're a newly formed team. Um, And so... They're getting used to the dynamic of coming together and working together, or you know the leaders having trouble, um, the leaders having trouble engaging with the team, or there's some conflict, there's some level of conflict. Yeah. And so, what team coaching um, is not probably it's not team building, it's not facilitating, it's not team learning. 
it's actually being able to manage those gaps in between those relationships with with all those members. So, and calls out, I think this is probably one of the most important things. There's a lot of things in teams that need to be discussed that aren't being discussed. And so coaching helps facilitate, helps, I suppose, open up those conversations in a safe environment and allows that to be, you know, allows that to be aired, allows mm. that to be thought of um, and discussed in a very in a very safe way. Creates transparency almost across the team. Yeah, it does. And so if we if we look at problem solving, if we look at creativity, we start to then look at, well, what makes them a team? Mm. What are those dependencies that bring them together as a, as a team where they are better as a team than what they are on their own? Mm. And it's not uncommon that we find sometimes, you know, when I ask the question of well, what, what makes you a team, getting back to that what's that common purpose, mm. sometimes there is none. Yeah. Sometimes they've been brought together as a team because, you know, they've well, been told to. <laughs> yeah, or because just from a structural um, oh, perspective, yeah. these are the direct reports that report through to the leader. Yeah. But what unites them? And sometimes they don't, you know, it's not uncommon that they don't know what unites them. And this leads us back to purpose yet again, doesn't it really? It's why, what do we want to be as a team? It's the same question that you're asking the leaders. Well, I think when they don't have that purpose, we, when they don't know what unites them, you know, you start to get conflict. Yeah. You know. Because um, everyone's got their own opinion. Yeah. And by simply, and that's when silos start to, yeah. start to happen, you know. Um, and so I think by just asking that one question, you know, a whole discussion comes out of that. It's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much for that. It's been Thanks for very, having me. very insightful. Before we go, got some rapid fire questions that we like to ask just to put you on the spot a little bit. Uh, nothing too out there. One question I always ask because I'm, I'm very interested, I'm a big reader. What is one book that you're reading right now? Um, so I am reading right now Your Body is Your Brain um, by Amanda Blake. Um, Body is Your Brain. Yeah. So What's that about? It's about somatic coaching. So okay. it's about um, the fact that we, we actually, when we make decisions, when we think and make decisions, um, we use our whole body, not just our brain. So our brain is part of our whole body and, yeah. and you – um, it's like the gut feeling almost. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, and and I think from a – I bring this back and look at it from my own coaching work and through a, a leader, leader's lens. I think when we show up um, in our everyday interactions, in, that, in our habits, you know, a lot of, of our behaviour is expressed um, in the way we hold ourselves. Yeah. Actions speak louder than words. Is that yeah. where the old saying yeah. comes from? So, yeah, so it's about um, – so I have a particular interest in this and, yeah. and bring a lot of this into my coaching work. So um, so that's what I'm reading. Yeah, that's, that's great. I might have to uh, pick a copy up for myself. So what out of all the books that you've gifted mm. or you've read or you've recommended or whatever, which one would you say is on top of your list for, for, for recommending to people or gifting to people? Hands down, um, Dare to Lead 
by Brene Brown. And I have to say, <laughs> I wasn't paid to make that comment knowing about. Um, there is an envelope getting pushed underneath the table right now. <laughs> <laughs> but um, having, you know, looked, I have been using Brene's work and I've, I think I've read every single book of hers for many yeah. years. I think everything you've touched on throughout this chat today has really come back to vulnerability and being out there and having the conversation and yeah. what the trigger points that all, oh, yeah, definitely comes back to yeah. Brene's. Yeah, but I, I particularly like, I think why I particularly like that book and I refer it to, a, to probably nearly every single leader I coach um, at some stage of their coaching journey Um is because it just does it so well. Mm. It just, the Dare to Lead, um, you know, book, if you like, it really takes the research and then looks at through, you know, looks at it through the lens of, you know, what does this mean for me as a leader? Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, getting back to what we were talking about earlier about well, who am I as my own leader, um, you know, if you're wanting to find out more, then definitely recommend reading that. Yeah, great. So name one thing on your bucket list right now. Well, just one thing on your bucket list, I guess, once COVID's over. Um, one thing on my bucket list um, is to go to New York. Mm. Mm. That might be a while away. I'm hoping that's going <laughs> to be next year. I have a milestone birthday next year, so I'm, I'm hoping that's going to be Congratulations or commiserations. Yeah, <laughs> 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 yeah I know. I'm 30. <laughs> nah, yeah, exactly. Don't look a day older. That's perfect. If you had one superpower, this one I didn't prepare you with, if you have one superpower, what would it be? Listening to understand. Oh, that's huge. Mm. Yeah, because often we listen to the re- reply, don't we? Yeah. Yeah, that is a superpower. Yeah. I love it. And my favourite question, what is your best dad joke? Ah, okay. So I have to confess I did, I did prepare a little bit for this one. I don't normally do dad jokes. A lot of my jokes I, I couldn't repeat. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. So, where, so you say my dad joke and I had to look for inspiration from um, my 10-year-old daughter, Alex, for this. Um, this is going to be good. I know Alex. Where, <laughs> where are French fries made? Where are French fries made? Greece. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> brilliant. Good job. Thanks, Alex. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Amanda. That's been uh, been really great chatting to you today. Very appreciative. Uh, where can we find you? What can we do to get so, in contact with you? Um, my website probably is where I've got all my contact details. So it is just um, amandasheedy.com. Perfect. Um, so we'll get we'll put that in the notes of the podcast. Yeah, excellent. AmandaShitty.com. Thank you. So you're available for team coaching and one-on-one coaching. Yes. Excellent. And obviously helping businesses through change, especially now. Yeah, I um I do a lot of change um change consulting um and yeah, from great. a strategy perspective these yeah, days. High yeah. level. Yeah. Stuff, which is great. Yeah. Beautiful. Thanks again, Amanda. Thank you. We'll catch you. Bye bye. Thank you once again for joining us here at Creating Synergy. It's been great spending this time with you. Please jump onto the Synergy IQ Facebook page where the discussion continues after the show. Join our mailing list so you'll know what's happening next at synergyiq.com.au. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And if you really enjoyed it, please share it with your friends.